0: Hello everybody, welcome to The Unscientific Method, where we unpack the research and lives of young scientists doing amazing things all around us. Today we have on Cindy Shaheen, who did her undergraduate degree at Carleton University in a combined honors in biology and physics. While at Carleton, she performed research on acoustic signaling in bark beetles, caterpillars, and butterflies, and on theoretical population ecology. She's now working away at her PhD, which started out at McGill University in Montreal, and the lab has moved all the way out west to the University of British Columbia. She's studying the structure of supercoil DNA in the lab of Dr. Sabrina Leslie. Welcome, Cindy. Hello. (laughs) Glad to be here. Yeah, we're excited to have you. Um, I have to admit, the last time, the last few times, I should say, that I used the term supercoiled, it was to describe, it was the nerdiest way to describe me being incredibly anxious and, like, reactive, and I was like, I'm just feeling supercoiled today, <laughs> and I couldn't, kind of like the the nerdy version of high-strung, I think.
1: Uh, yeah, I guess that means a lot of sense. Uh, when I use, and I'm just talking about, like, twisting up the DNA and then, you twist it up so much that it starts to feel all of that force and all of that tension. So kind of, uh, I can see how I can use that to mean anxious.
0: Yeah. 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 It's <laughs> similar, a similar idea in that sense. Can you tell us a bit about what super cool DNA is? is? Uh,
1: yeah. So, um, DNA, just in case you're not aware is a long molecule that you normally have that ladder that's twisted up in a double helix, like you see on all of those science sculptures. Um, but in one, one of your cells, you have about two meters of DNA. So for the DNA to fit in your cell, it has to be twisted up. Uh, because if you just crumple it all and shove it into a cell, then uh, imagine when you take headphones out of your pockets and all the wires are tangled up. It's completely unusable. Uh, so when I'm talking about supercoiling in DNA, I'm talking about when the DNA gets twisted up more than it normally is or less than it normally is in order to be properly compacted.
0: Okay, so, so it's this different twisting of DNA. And why is this something that we're interested in studying? Uh,
1: Well, like I already said, when you twist it up, you start to put a lot of force onto the DNA. And this can cause all sorts of interesting changes to the DNA structure that you wouldn't have otherwise. Um, So, for example, the change that I'm always studying is, uh, I mentioned that DNA is that ladder where you have the um, rungs between the double helix. Um, When you have enough supercoiling... uh, Specifically, when you untwist it enough, you can get that ladder to break apart and open up at predictable, predictable places in the DNA. And I'm really interested in studying this because a lot of other pieces of cell- cellular machinery, like enzymes, which are specific types of proteins, can now bind onto that DNA and start doing things that are helpful for the cells.
0: Oh, very cool. Okay, so when you have specific structures of DNA, you get different enzymes and proteins that are recruited to it? Uh, yeah, exactly. And how does this affect how a cell behaves?
1: On the DNA side of things, the cell needs to have some way of triggering which pieces of the DNA are being read at different times. Uh, for example, to express genes. And this is called gene regulation. This is how we make sure that like, the cells in your eyeballs uh, express eye cells and not, say, toenail cells. <laughs> um, That's awesome. Cool study I read. They made fruit fly eyeballs. Uh, no, a fruit fly knee express fruit fly eye cells. Did, did it see? I don't can think it see? saw, but okay. it did like grow an eye on its knee.
0: Whoa, that's, that's that's crazy. Okay, so so speaking to the importance of gene regulation, yes, we want our eyeballs in the right spot.
1: <laughs> exactly. Um, now, DNA and the cell itself is incredibly complicated. There's a whole bunch of different ways that it goes about regulating genes and determining what gets expressed when. And one way that it can go about doing this is by having these structural transitions recruit different proteins to it in order to signal that this is when and where a certain gene should be expressed.
0: Okay, that makes sense. That makes sense. It's funny because I I usually, I think in my day-to-day, I think about gene expression really as a product of like all these extrinsic factors that are coming in, and I never really think about the structure of the DNA itself and how that may affect how those genes are being transcribed and and how the cell is behaving in that sense.
1: Oh, yeah. It's uh, really cool. Um, Part of my love, I'm a biophysicist by trade, which means that I'm in between, uh, I take The tools that we learn in physics and apply them to the questions that we have in biology and part of that is to look at dna more as a long polymer and this is the force on it and this is how it changes structure as opposed to how say a biologist might look at the signaling that you get from other cells a psychologist might look at how um, your day-to-day life and the stresses from there can affect you on a physiological level or a biochemist can look like how there's chemical modifications happening to the dna and all this is important to figuring out exactly how gene regulation works um, and we just all come at it at different angles, fill in different pieces of the puzzle.
0: Yeah, very cool. Did you were you always kind of a physicist at heart or was it more biology to begin with? I know you studied some insect behavior to begin with, but but still kind
1: of in a more physics oriented way, right? Uh, yeah. So the honest answer is when I was in high school, I did not like chemistry. So when I was looking for programs in undergrad, uh, Carleton University, which was a local university for me, offered a double major in biology and physics. And I entered that program uh, fully expecting to choose one or the other after first year. But the longer I was in the program, the more I loved that intersection between the two of them. And I've always really been drawn to the biology questions, but I've always really loved the way that physics... Tackled problem solving where you try to like model things with math and then find ways to prove your models and you uh, make graphs of everything. Um, So for example, the insect acoustic lab, what drew me to that lab in the first place, uh, one, I was interested in animal behavior, but also acoustic signals are a very physical property where you have the vibrations and you record them and you do a whole bunch of math to then break it down into the spectrum and analyze what's going on, uh, uh, what the signals look like. Uh, So I found that a very appealing way to mix the two together.
0: Whoa, that's so cool. And is this how, it just as an aside, this is how insects talk to each other through this acoustic signaling? Uh,
1: this particular insect, yes. It differs from species to species. Okay, but, yeah. interesting. Very cool. That's really, really cool.
0: Um, yeah, I, I feel like I've actually recently gotten into this when I, went, I came from pretty much a a basic biology background um, and then have since moved into a lab that's more kind of engineering engineering and physics forward. And I started to learn some of this modeling and some of this kind of computational work that can really complement the biology that you're doing and really drive it in a way that's super structured. And I've loved it. I've really, really enjoyed it. So it's pretty cool that that you found that early and that you've kind of continued to push the edge of both of those
1: Um, exactly. And also, uh, I've seen the opposite where sometimes when you're in a lab, um, again, going back to my first time in the insect lab, we're doing a whole bunch of things that we're trying to learn from scratch about how to do acoustic processing. And sometimes I'm wondering, uh, about what other fields have already solved these problems and have tools that they could just lend to us to help with our own problems. Uh, So for example, uh, fields like linguistics do a lot of acoustic processing. Pure physics does some of it. Um, Music understands a lot about acoustics. So if we just bridge the gap between those fields more and have more interdisciplinary communication, um, we'd be able to answer our questions a lot better.
0: Wow, that's so cool. That's such a a cool perspective of, of bringing some of those... Fields that really feel far from science, but could be could be a lot closer. That's really interesting. Um, anyway, I want to I get back to a bit of the science. Um, tell us how you study the structure of DNA.
1: Uh, yeah. So in our lab, we are actually a single molecule fluorescence lab. Um, so we use some really cool microscope techniques to study the DNA. And the one that we use in our lab the most is called a convex lens-induced confinement, or CLICK. Um, I'll be calling it click from now on, much less of a mouthful. Um, And it's a cool technique that we can use to trap molecules and isolate them so we can look at one at a time for a long period of time without it diffusing out of the field of view. Uh, So to give a bit more of a picture of how this works, first of all, uh, we do fluorescence microscopy, which means that we're looking at um, a fluorophore, which is a small molecule that when you shine a light of one color onto it, it gives off light of a different color. Uh, So now um, we have a very sensitive camera where we can see the light coming from one single molecule. Um, So we'll shine, say, a green laser onto it and collect yellow light that comes off. Then we uh, make a flow cell of two pieces of glass stuck together with double-sided tape. And we have etched really tiny features into the bottom piece of glass. And these tiny features are, for example, long narrow channels or tiny little pits, I tend to use the pits, that are micrometers or nanometers in size. so we put the sample in between those two pieces of glass, and then we squish down the top piece of glass with the convex lens until it's in contact with the bottom piece of glass. And when it's in contact, we'll trap the molecules into the pits or whatever other features on the bottom. So now they're stuck in that uh, they're stuck in that feature, and we can image it for a long period of time. And importantly, we're not uh, we're not affecting the molecule structure in any way, shape, or form. So we're not attaching it to the surface with a tether. So it's still free to have whatever structure it would naturally have in solution. Um, in order to use this to study my systems, I take some DNA that has a structure that I'm interested in, and I add in a fluorescent probe that can bind to the structure only if the structure is there. So I mix those together, trap them in the pits, and then the probe moves really, really fast if it's uh, free in solution. And it moves so fast, that it just forms a cloud and it looks like a smear on our videos. But when it binds to the much, much larger DNA, it slows right down and now we have a spot that we can see moving around very slowly in the pits and then I'll just trap them, count how many spots I see, release them back into the solution, trap more, count how many there are, and I can do this in a whole bunch of different conditions to see how the condition affects the structure.
0: Okay, and do you have different probes for different structures, or is it mainly one, one structure you're interested in and you're looking at it in a variety of different conditions?
1: Uh, at the moment, I'm specifically interested in one structure. It's that structure that opens up and uh, the ladder breaks when it's, um, when there's enough supercoiling. And I've been looking at that structure in a bunch of different conditions, uh, specifically when you change the temperature, how long does it take for that uh, structure to form after a temperature change?
0: Okay, very cool. That's really interesting. Um, and one of the things that you had said kind of initially is that you're you're looking at this intersection between physics and biology. And so we're thinking about the physics of, of the DNA supercoiling. Can you actually of calculate what the tension is based on how many of these structures that you see?
1: Uh, yeah, so there's some complicated calculations. Um, we have some collaborators who work a lot more on the theory side. Uh, specifically, there's one collaborator named Craig Benham who has done a lot to make computer programs that try to project uh, predict what structures will be present in a piece of DNA at given conditions, um, looking at the thermodynamics of the system. And what's really important there is that the entire molecule feels the same amount of supercoiling, and that supercoiling wants to be relaxed. It wants to go away. So if we have some of the molecule open up, then that will absorb some of the supercoiling and put less supercoiling uh, and put less stress on the rest of the molecule. What gets really interesting is when you start to have uh, several different structures on one molecule or in one uh, topological domain, because now they're all competing for that same supercoiling energy, and you'll have really unintuitive results in how the transit, uh, in how the transitions in how the structural transitions form.
0: Okay. So, so is that, does that mean essentially in certain circumstances, you can't really predict which areas you think are going to, um, kind
1: of absorb that and open up. So you've got those structures that you expect to see. Uh, correct. Like I could tell you which areas, are the ones that can or cannot open up, but it still is very much an open question in an actual, situ- in an actual real situation, which ones will be there at these conditions. Will we have okay. the open site one or will we have something called ZDNA at site two? Um, I know that both of them are possible. I don't know which one is favored at this particular condition.
0: Okay, so it's, it's still figuring out essentially how the conditions lead to opening in a given spot. Yes. Um, and is there any, any kind of idea on specifically how these conditions can lead to differences in gene expression downstream?
1: Uh, yeah. So like I mentioned before, um, that unwinding in the first place, uh, the, uh, when the ladder opens up, um, that gives access to different proteins being able to bind to the DNA. And one thing that this can do, and there's evidence of this in a couple genes and growing evidence of this being far more widespread than that, is that when a protein binds to that open DNA, it can start, uh, it signals for the gene to start transcribing, a, a gene nearby to start transcribing. And then when that gene is transcribing, that creates more supercoiling around it, which will keep the site open longer and create a positive feedback loop where you're now stimulating the expression of this gene. Um, oh, wow. Additionally, if there's another gene nearby, it could also um, stimulate the opening of a site on that gene and trigger that gene's expression as well.
0: Okay, very cool. Um, and, and just so we can back it up a little bit, um, why why do we need to know why these genes are being transcribed? In general, kind of how how can we think about... So we're seeing differences in these in these feedback loops. We're getting a lot more of one gene versus another. Um, how do you think about it in terms of understanding it in the greater world of science or, or cell biology?
1: Uh, yeah. So from the more basic research side of things, um, gene regulation and is one of the things that we still don't fully understand in biology. And also... Um, Tangential to gene regulation, uh something called cell differentiation, which is when your eye cell becomes an eye cell and your toenail cell becomes a toenail cell. Um, those are s- How exactly that works are still major open questions in biology, so we're always looking to further the understanding of that. Uh, from a more applied science perspective, a lot of diseases and a lot of times when things go wrong in your body, it's because such pathways aren't working properly. Uh, so for example, in cancer, cancer arises when you have a lot of mutations leading to Uh, when you have a lot of mutations in your cell, leading to cells that grow really fast, divide really fast, and eat up all the resources. And in a lot of cancer cells, they find that there's some genes that are being expressed completely wrong and we're getting way too much of this gene being expressed than we're expecting. Um, So if we can better understand how gene expression is supposed to work, we can then try to work on understanding ways that we can treat it when it's gone wrong.
0: That makes sense. That makes sense. And so, so how do you think, I mean, this is kind of all building off this idea of... We have to go really in deep to look at the structure of the DNA and to understand how these structures unwind. And then that will lead us to understanding how these proteins are recruited and how this changes gene expression um, over time and and theoretically kind of in the context of cell differentiation as well. Um, How do you think about the current status of how basic science is approached in Canada
1: Uh, Yeah, so basic science is always incredibly important in my mind, um, because the way that I think about it is that you can't really have all of those. um, Applied science is really important because that's where you get the discoveries, um, the developments that really help humanity. But you can't always get those discoveries unless you have a strong foundation of what's underlying it. So the basic research is really important to give us that foundation so then the applied scientists can then come in and build off of that and make it useful. On top of that, there's numerous examples throughout history of times when a basic researcher made a discovery or an invention that they did just for fun that proved to be incredibly useful. Uh, for example, the person who invented lasers that started as a basic research project. And now we use lasers in our day-to-day life in CD players, cash registers, different surgeries, many, many science labs. Uh, they're a staple of life.
0: The other example that I can always that I always think of is the uh, discovery of or the research that happened on the magnetic spin of an atom, um, and how that led to the development of magnetic resonance imaging of MRI machines, and how yeah. how pivotal that's been in our healthcare. And so that was basic science too, right?
1: Like oh, exactly. So that's another yeah. one. And the other one that I really love is this discovery of a protein called tach, uh, tach polymerase where uh, it was a bunch of scientists just studying a thermophile, which is a bacteria that just lives near thermal vents and can survive very um, very hot environments. And they found a protein called TAC polymerase, which is a protein that can transcribe DNA, but at high temperatures and it can withstand high temperatures. And that's now a staple protein for an incredibly common biology uh, biology protocol called PCR that labs all over the world use whenever they need to amplify DNA. they
0: totally. like CRISPR, CRISPR is the other one. Yeah, it's, yeah, it's, yeah there's so, so many examples of it. And so, so it's, yeah, it really is so important to give this, uh, give this basic science kind of a fair shot Okay, I want to ask a little bit more about you, um, and really, so we we know you've kind of been into biology and physics and initially when you were younger you didn't like chemistry did you always like science in general did you think you were going to be a scientist
1: uh yeah I always liked science in general um when I was really really young I remember seeing a chemistry show that was pretty much a magic show and then I associated like science with magicians for the longest time and it's like what do you want to be when you grow up I want to be a magician or a scientist I love it Um, When I got a bit older, uh, I really got into animal science and animal behavior. I remember in elementary school, we had to take a library book out every week. And I would always go straight for like a book on deep sea creatures or animals or read up on like uh, cool animal behaviors that people know. Uh, So I was really into that as a kid. Um, And then as I got older, I started taking science in school, discovering um, that I really loved biology. I really loved physics. Yeah, got into the program at university. And now here I am. Uh, Is there anything in particular that led you from studying insects
0: into studying DNA?
1: I've always had a bunch of really randomly scattered scientific interests and DNA and how gene regulation works has always been near the top of that list. Um, I think it started when I was a kid and my mom, who has a degree in psychology, read a paper once about uh, epigenetics and how environmental factors such as like early childhood stress can cause epigenetic changes in your brain. So I grew up with this term epigenetics. I was just like, how does this work? This is so cool. What's happening besides just the DNA sequence? What else about DNA can like lead to how the genes are um, expressed and regulated? And there's always been that kind of interest in my mind.
0: Okay, one of the things that I found really cool in the bio that you sent me is that you play the clarinet and you're a novelist, which is really, really, really interesting. And so what kind of role does still kind of dipping your toe in the arts have in your life, and how does it affect your science?
1: Uh, Yeah, so in my life, I believe very strongly in work-life balance, and I believe very strongly that if you spend every single second of your day thinking about work, thinking about science, thinking about all of these interesting problems, you're going to go insane and burn yourself out. Um, I did burn out a little bit after undergrad just because it was so much work, and I was working one to two jobs throughout the whole thing, Um, but uh, for example, the playing the clarinet, uh, until COVID, I was always in concert bands. So even when I was the most stressed that, that I could be about school once a week, I'd still carve out a couple hours just to go play music in terms of more of a role that it has on my science. The music aspect I find really helped with some of my leadership skills, uh, in the bands that I was in, I would get involved in, um, some more executive positions where I'm helping to organize concerts or I would like, uh, be section leader sometimes, or I would also know how to like sit back and let other people kind of take the lead. And then the novel writing very recently, I've been getting really into scientific storytelling and that whole branch of science communication where I'm now trying to look at novel writing in a way where I'm wondering how can I apply the skills of crafting a story, which I've been honing for a hobby to my own science writing and my own science presenting to make it a lot more interesting. I'm still kind of new at this. I still haven't fully figured it out, but it's definitely a cool thing to look into.
0: That's incredible. One of my favorite ways to get science information or just kind of... Read a little bit about uh, some scientific concept is actually through fiction, and so I love. I mean, I think that the most one of the most recent big books in this area was Where the Crawdads Sing, um, or Where the Crawdads Sings. I think I can't remember. Anyway, there's a movie coming up right now. It's it's this beautiful book, and it's it's this real really beautiful testament to biology, and the way she writes is, is quite. Quite incredible. The descriptions are really wonderful. I, I just kind of got myself lost in it. And I have this this kind of tiny dream at some point that that this is a really good way to communicate science. And how do you bring science like what we do? Um, which is which is for you very molecular and very kind of jargon rich, and how do you bring it into the world in, in ways like novels? And it's that's just so cool. Have you written any um, science-based books
1: um i haven't really i'm a fantasy writer mostly um i like to make up my own worlds every once in a while a little bit of science will slip into it when i start to wonder how did dragons evolve um and i start to like approach things from a more evolution-based angle it would be cool to like put more science in my books but uh I just have a passion for the fantasy stories.
0: Yeah, that's very cool. But but I think, I, I think fantasy in its own way definitely has some science in there. Like if you're developing your own world, you're thinking about how this world functions and how everything around it interacts. And so I, I'm sure there is, I'm sure there's quite a lot of uh, yourself going into there or your scientific kind of information. Going oh, yeah. Into there. It's yeah. probably
1: going in in many subconscious ways that I just haven't really uh, articulated or really thought too deeply about. <laughs> so cool. Are you published at all? Are you publishing? Uh, I am not. Um, I've gotten really good at writing first drafts. I still need to learn how to revise.
0: Oh, that's fair. <laughs> that's it. I'm sure the the most difficult part of it going back to it and being like, how do I choose what to include? How do I do this? Yeah.
1: How do I fix that? All those things I said I'll deal with in revisions. How do I fix them? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm not ready for
0: this yet. I'm gonna write something new. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Oh, that's so cool. What a what a really really cool hobby. Okay. We're going to move on to the, the rapid fire questions. What is something that you're most proud of?
1: The paper that I published last year, it's my first, first authorship, and it took me four years to write. Hey, congratulations. That's really exciting. Thank you. Yeah. What is something that you're struggling with currently? I'm currently doing two projects at the same time, trying to get another two publications in the next year or so. And I guess I'm struggling with balancing the two of them with each other and not just like focusing on one completely and letting the other one fall away,
0: yeah, 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 that's that's totally fair i'm I'm in a very similar position right now where I've got a few different avenues that I can follow up on my project, and I'm trying to balance the Difference between going down one completely, which may actually be better for my brain sometimes, I think. I've I mm-hmm. got a bit of a liberty of, of some time for some of these projects. But instead, the approach that I've taken is do everything all at once, which which hasn't worked for me right now on this podcast, actually. Um, we did uh, filming for some of our social media and one of the questions was, how
1: do you prioritize your time? And I was like, oh, I don't know if I have a good answer for this right now. I
0: don't know. I don't know if you can ask me this question.
1: I pick one thing and I focus on it completely until I get bored of it. And then I realize it's been twice as long as I should have spent on it.
0: <laughs> That's awesome. It sounds like we've got opposite approaches, but you're making me feel better for, for maybe not going one oh, yeah. fully deep one way. <laughs> it's a difficult thing. It's really hard. Are you looking
1: to finish up soon? I'm hoping to finish next year.
0: Oh, that's great. Okay. So you've yeah. kind of got that end inside and that's the Yeah,
1: point. exactly. So yeah. I, I ha- I'm kind of ambitious. My professor and I are disagreeing over when that end date is. Of I'm course. I'm yeah. airing on earlier, she's airing on later. Yeah. So I've become determined to prove that I'm right.
0: <laughs> yes. Um for everybody out there, your professor will always want you to graduate later because you are the best and the cheapest labor and they always want more science. And uh, And you're a- already trained. Yes, exactly. You're already trained. <laughs> Um, Okay, my last question is, do you have a favorite novel that has inspired you in your writing?
1: My current favorite novel is called Six of Crows by Leigh Bardugo, and it's a fantasy heist story with a very interesting cast of characters. Can't think of exactly how it inspired me in my writing, but I do love that novel, and I do, like, reread every once in a while.
0: (laughs) Nice, that's awesome. Um, do you have an like overall favorite novel overall time or do you think this is that, it, that's or? it at the moment? Okay, yeah. okay, awesome. That's really cool. I'm just starting to get into fantasy, nice. um, mostly because the, there's a bunch of people in my lab who are like, "This is amazing. You should definitely read these things." And I know I'm going to be really into it when I get there. I just for whatever reason oh, yeah. haven't stumbled upon it yet.
1: One girl in my lab just convinced me to read a thousand page book by Brandon Sanderson that is the first of a quintet. Oh more books out of which are out. So I read the first one. It was really good. And now I'm just staring and I bought the next three and I'm just staring at how tall that pile of books is. And I'm just like, this is probably a mistake on my productivity.
0: Yes. Yeah. <laughs> it's so true. It's so true. That maybe that's what scared me away from from fantasy a little bit is because often it's these kind of grand stories that go over multiple books. But um but I've gotten some people to recommend kind of like the the more small stories. Kind of intro fantasy series so far. Do you
1: have any of those that you'd recommend? Uh, I will say I read a lot of young adult fiction, and I find that that tends to be shorter and like faster reads. It's not as dense on the world building, and it tends to be a much uh, just the general style in that genre it tends to be more faster paced. So I find that normally, even if it's a big series, I can read each book in a day or two.
0: Nice. Okay. Um, okay, that's good. Maybe I'll check out some of those. We'll we'll see how that goes. Yeah. Anyway, thank you so much, Cindy. This will this will yes. kind of wrap up our conversation. Um, and this has been Cindy Shaheen. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. This podcast was created with the help of our incredible team at The Unscientific Method. Our storytellers are Shada Swan and Sophia Ramirez. Audio editing done by Candice Ip, Kelly Liu, Richard Chiang, and Jessica Peng. Marketing and promotions are done by Helen Ipp. We also have the pleasure of working with Advice to a Scientist and SciCats to create science communication workshops for the young researchers that we have on the show. Thank you to Laura Stankiewicz, Candace Ip, and Jen Ma for making these happen. And if you want to let us know how we're doing, request something that you want to hear about, or learn more about the workshops, hit us up on social media. Follow us at the.unscientific.method on Instagram, or on Twitter at, at unscientificubc send us a message on Instagram, Twitter, or at the unscientific method at gmail.com because we'd really, really love to hear from you. Bye for now.